0: Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at the issues that matter for the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who covers the ups and downs of politics in our region, the mayors, town halls, MPs and councillors, and try and make sense what it means for people living in our towns, cities and villages. Later in the podcast, you'll want to listen out for my interview with Amy Newton, the founder of the Manchester Tech Festival. We all know technology and digital going to be a bigger and bigger focus for our political leaders in the coming years but are we doing enough to make sure people from council estates in the north can get the kind of jobs that are cropping up in the shiny skyscrapers that you'll find in Manchester city centre find out why Amy says the working poor and specifically the children of alcoholics have the skills that could make them a valuable asset to any tech company plus how do you play cat bingo and why will visitors to the Manchester Tech Festival, get a chance to have a go at it. First up, let's have a proper look at a subject that has found itself not before time at the forefront of the political agenda in the last few days. The question of how do we solve the housing crisis? And specifically, why aren't we building enough homes? Labour leader Keir Starmer put the issue at the front of his offering to the electorate at party conference, declaring himself a YIMBY meaning he'd be happy to have homes built in his backyard. And just this week, the BBC launched a major new documentary series called Britain's Housing Crisis. What went wrong? With the spoiler being, uh, a lot of things went wrong in the last 20 years. But I want to get a sense of how this is playing out in the north and I've got two great guests today with different regional perspectives. Arlen Pettit is a policy and comms consultant who writes a northeast policy newsletter with the brilliant name The War Room, spelt W-O-R, and just this week wrote a piece bemoaning the failure to build enough homes over the years and bringing us a more rural perspective is Tom Jones, a Conservative councillor for Scotland and Lower Wensleydale, in North Yorkshire, a commentator on all sorts of political subjects, who wrote recently for the Northern Agenda newsletter on why council tax has been hiked on second homes in his part of the world to help tackle the local housing crisis. So, Tom Arlen,
1: welcome along. Brilliant to be here, thanks a lot, Rob.
0: Thanks for having us. So, why don't we just start by, because you're both coming from different parts of the North, just spell out, I guess, how... Is the housing crisis playing out where you are? Let me start with you, Arlen. you, you you're in your, your newsletter this week. You uh, sort of had a really nice graphic about the, the number of new homes built in different parts of the the northeast. I mean, what, what what's the situation where you are?
1: So, um, so yeah. So this week we had the um, the kind of latest set of of kind of house building stats, and and that provided me an opportunity to do some mapping and have a look at, at, at how that played out across the country. And yeah, the northeast. In terms of homes built, um, in comparison to other parts of the country, isn't doing too badly. So, um, particularly Northumberland and and County Durham, um, both of those in the last year built about fifteen hundred new homes across the region as a whole. it's About eight and a half thousand. So, pretty good in comparison to others. Still, probably not enough to, to kind of make a dent in the the kind of um, the housing kind of issues in the northeast. I think an important thing to sort of, I guess. Um, caveat all of these discussions is that every part of the country has got a slightly different crisis. So um, it's very easy to look at the national picture and say, well, the issue is that homes cost too much and people can't get on the housing ladder. The The difference between the, the kind of the ratio of, of um, house prices and, um, and income is, is growing, and that's a problem. And um, and that is true. Um, but in the Northeast, house prices are the lowest in the country, um, relatively more affordable. Um, and, and so that's not the fundamental problem that the Northeast faces. The issue the Northeast has got is about quality of housing and quantity of the right types of housing in the right place. So it's the way in which the housing stock support the economic and demographic changes that have happened over the course of the last 20, 30, 40 years in the Northeast. Um, and how we build a, a kind of system that enables that to, to evolve in the way that we need it to. So um, it's, it's heartening to see that um, Northumberland and County Durham are, are, are kind of doing, doing the best in terms of um, responding to that because those are the parts of the region where the industrial makeup has changed significantly. Um, there's lots of, of kind of um, very affordable homes in those counties, but they're not necessarily in the places where work is or where people want to be living um and so there's a big there's a need to shift all of that and there's a need to change it and so i think that's the the kind of picture in the northeast is is we we don't necessarily have the same crisis as other parts of the country but uh it's it's equally as difficult and equally as challenging a a one to overcome
0: yeah absolutely yeah so not necessarily a lack of houses but a lack in the right places where they're where they're needed and tom you're where you are in rural North Yorkshire is quite a different uh situation, isn't it? I mean, just explain what the issues are that you know councillors like yourself and political leaders in North Yorkshire are trying to trying to deal with.
2: I mean, Arlen's absolutely right to say that there are multiple different crises. Um, and ours is ours is very, very different to the Northeast. Um because ours is one of a combination of ownership and supply. So um rather than um housing quality or, or placement um as it is in the northeast um richmondshire uh the local council which actually was um got rid of last year it's all part of one um council now had the worst um uh, one of the worst home building records in the country and one of the major problems for that is that um A lot of it is covered by the Yorkshire Dales National Park. So, the new authority, um, North Yorkshire, has two very, very large pools at either end in the east and the west, the Dales and the Moors, where planning is, um, the the planning authority is actually the National Park. um, And the National Park uh, essentially is very, very, very opposed to building any new houses and views its role very much as preserving in aspic. Uh, the Dales and the Moors as they are right now. I think the Moors housing plan is something ridiculous, like 50 homes over the next three years. Um, so we have real, real problems sustaining some of those um small villages because whilst that's a supply problem in that, that we can't generate enough supply, um that then forces us to, to, to load what supply we can get into areas like um, Catrick, which I represent quite a lot of, um, where you have to kind of agglomerate the housing to make up for the fact that you can't build it in the, in the parks. But on top of that, we have an ownership, supply, uh, an ownership problem because we have the highest number of second homes in, in, uh, in Yorkshire and the Humber because we have some of Britain's most attractive areas. We have the moors, which are gorgeous, the dales I grew up in, which are fantastic. We have coastal towns, uh, Whitby, Scarborough, Filey. Um, and that problem is a bit like the problem, uh, one of the problems in London, which is that, you know, second homeowners in London may be from Singapore rather than from Surrey, but different boots very much feel the same to the person being kicked. Um and without enough supply, housing is essentially a zero-sum game. Um, and the average cost of a property in the Dales is now uh, over £400,000. And the average weekly wage across North Yorkshire is just over £500. Quid. So we have real questions about how to balance the rights of communities um, to, uh, to live in the villages they grew up in against basically uh, saying to people, I'm sorry, you can't live around here, even though you can afford it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's having a real impact on the sort of viability of many communities in North Yorkshire going forward. And you mentioned um, Richmondshire, which obviously is a uh, a local authority that no longer exists, but it it is obviously Vishi Sunak's local council, it was when it was uh, around. And yeah, so in over the last five financial years just 290 new dwellings were completed uh, in richmondshire which is according to new figures from the office for national Statis- statistics and it that, that i guess is an example of how like the rate of house building just varies so dramatically uh across the country where you, you've got places like in the sort of home counties where the numbers of homes being built over five years is just a few dozen uh but then in Manchester over the same period, there were eleven thousand two hundred ninety homes built, but yet there is still a housing crisis in Manchester as well. Like it, it, the rents are shooting up, and people can't afford to afford to live there. So, as you say, it, it kind of is an issue that uh, is playing out in different ways. But I mean, Arlen, I mean, I'm interested in your view as someone who you know looks at the northeast as a whole. What why might it be that some areas are doing better? At building homes than than others, is, is it sort of something that the local councils are doing, or like the uh, something specific to you know the, the makeup of the local area? Why does it vary so much from place to place?
1: Well, I think I mean every place is different. Um, I think the 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 fundamentals are that places where you've got space that isn't restricted. So obviously the the, the kind of um, the moors and the dales being. Um, being kind of protected that's that's difficult even though there's a lot of space there and clearly you you need to be very careful with it but there's lots of there's lots of space in northumberland there's lots of space in county durham um there's lots of brownfield sites there's lots of former industrial sites there's there's opportunity um to to sort of build and to and to potentially um do a bit of that agglomeration point that tom made as well where you, you you put everything in one place um i think the sustainability issue of communities is is one that's equally valid in the northeast as well there are there are plenty of places in the northeast where population is falling and something needs to change in order to support those communities and those those kind of local services that exist within them Um, i think it i think ultimately the, the the ones that are doing well are the ones that have got a plan they know what they want to be doing they know which sites they want to be working on they have a strategy for how they're going to be delivering stuff um and there's will, there's local political will to, to do this, either to position themselves as a place where development can happen because they see the value of it and they see that it's economically an important thing to be doing, um, or because it's it's sort of part of a kind of political mission in that place to sort of redevelop and to, and to sort of um, regenerate regions or parts of the region that that need some of it. I think... Um, Fundamentally, across the country, objections very easy, um, and building coalitions of support. And I, and I know this is something that um, I'm sure Tom will agree with. Build, building coalitions of support to to build housing in the right places um, is very, very difficult, um, and it's and it's kind of perpetually a challenge. And I think there are parts of the country where people face it down a bit more than others, um, or there are parts of the country where it's harder to build objections that stick because there is that brownfield site, or there is that plan in place that allows people to um to point to sites that have been identified already Um, and and yeah i think when we look across particularly bits of the country where house building is very very low um you can you can you can look at it and see where the kind of political frictions are existing at a local level um there's a um planning consultancy called Litchfield who are based across the country but they've got an, an office in the northeast and Um, They did some work earlier in the year um, looking at how many of the local plans. So these are the official document that um, kind of sets out the sites that are available in the strategy for housing. And um, I think just a third, according to their research, a third of local planning authorities had an up-to-date local plan that was less than five years old. So those places that have got that, they know what they're doing. Um, They know which sites ought to be developed in the next few years, and and they've got a, a good idea of it where there hasn't been a local plan adopted or where it hasn't been reviewed it in the last few years that probably implies that there's there's friction and there's there's difficulty there agreeing on that and getting the political buy-in and the local local community buy-in and that's that's a that's a that's a difficult thing that's a difficult challenge to overcome but it is it's a fundamental one when you when you're talking about places that people live and, and what's what's necessary in order to sustain them
0: yeah absolutely well
1: there's a great example of what you've just
0: described in uh, york which uh we're featured in the northern agenda newsletter today So york city of york council is an area that does not have a local plan so they've not local leaders haven't been able to agree a general vision for where housing is going to go and there's a village on the outskirts of york called uh, huntington where barrett david wilson homes wanted to build 300 homes uh, on the edge of this village and the council said no they weren't going to but now Michael Gove's levelling up department has uh, intervened and said that yes these homes can be built despite furious objections from locals and the fact that they say that building these homes is going to turn the village from a, a rural character to a suburban one so I guess it, it sort of backs up what you say that areas that don't have a vision for where homes are going to go they're going get, to get it imposed upon them And then that will you know that will end up with more more friction in the in the first place tom i mentioned this uh this doc bbc documentary that i was Mm -hmm. was watching about the housing crisis and what went wrong and it's a a pretty infuriating watch it goes all the way back to the labor government and you know gordon brown's decision to give the bank of england operational independence which then resulted in lower mortgage rates and then and and it and it, it sort of, so it charts the history of the crisis back a long way. And I guess the striking thing is how each new government comes in and says, we're going to be the ones who are going to build all these new homes, which will, uh, you know, create this property, property owning class that will benefit our democracy. And yet none of them have successfully been able to do it. I'd be interested in your view. Is there one thing that you would point to that has held us back throughout the last However long you think this crisis has been going on to that if we could if we could tackle that issue, we might go some way to solving this,
2: yeah, I mean I mean you talk about the supply um government's um existing target, which uh, unfortunately we had to abandon uh, last year because of entrenched nimbyism um was three hundred thousand homes a year um and I know Alan, you've written about the Center for cities' research as of i um it would take fifty years building 300,000 homes uh, for us to clear off our housing backlog. Unfortunately, no government has built that many homes since 1977, which clearly shows that this is not a party political problem. This is a systemic problem. And the thing that is putting us in this position is, is the comprehensive failure of the current planning system to deliver those, that number of houses or any number of houses at scale in the UK. Um, and that's because we have what's called a discretion. well, this what I think, obviously. Um, we have what's called a discretionary planning system, um, where we focus on individual applications and, uh, rather than what's called a zonal system, where you kind of front load the public engagement to a development plan Um, And that's an outlier um, in most developed countries, actually, not just in Europe. America has that system as well. Um, It makes the planning system so horrendously expensive um, that basically only large building companies um, can navigate it effectively, which means that you get... um, you know essentially a monopolistic um market in which large builders dominate and they're able to do things like land banking um so it's it i mean really it is the planning system that is that is holding us up and it is systemic um across across all uh,
0: across the whole system frankly it's up and down the country so th- this alternative system that that you're sort of uh, suggesting there so is the point of it that people would be able to... The consultation doesn't take place on individual applications. It takes place on the broad consensus of where housing should go. And then once that consultation has happened, then there's less friction for stopping individual applications from coming in. Yeah, yeah. You can
2: build it in such a way that that communities can select, essentially, how many houses they would like of what kind on a particular site um, you know, if there is, a, a, for instance, um, a brownfield site in a in a village that is going to take a lot of money to clear up, um, they can select a greenfield site instead. They can say that they only want social housing or or a, or a higher percentage of social housing because the local need. Um, but then that is the public engagement stage. So communities have much more of a a defined say. And you don't get builders coming in saying, well, we're going to put 18 houses on that site, even though your local plan only says you want eight because we've got to build 18 because that's the only way we can make it work. Um, You can define a site, define what kind of houses, define the number, define the density, um, select a site that works for your community and select a kind of housing that works for your community um, and then let the builders build it.
0: It'll be interesting to see whether that could ever work here um obviously a lot of this as as most things do com- comes down to some extent to party politics and um arlen you'll have seen i'm sure that keir starmer in his conference speech a few, a few days ago you know housing and building more houses was at the center of it and he was talking about sort of reviewing the way that the green belt with this sort of protected land that stops uh you know urban areas merging into each other that a review of how that works giving more capacity to planning officers at local councils to allow them to make more decisions. And um, I mean, it, it, I just wonder whether you think it's likely that, or how this will shake, shake out politically, I suppose, like with an election coming up, do you think it's something that Labour are going to be able to really go hard at and say, this is what we want to do? Is, that, is it an electoral ele- election-winning strategy for them to, to, to do that, do you think?
1: I think, I think housing's always um a hot topic for elections i think it's and and it's one of those that has multiple levels to it so there'll be a national story and there'll be local stories as well um and and people's kind of points of view on on planning and on housing will in, will always influence um, voters and influence kind of um electoral results i think the thing that's was really interesting about um starmer's speech and that and that particular um kind of sort of policy announcement within it was that um he wasn't actually promising anything that the government hadn't been promising so it was 1.5 million homes over the next five years that i got my calculator out and checked that's 300,000 a year which is obviously exactly the same as uh, as as the target had been in, in uh, was the target in the last manifestos as well um and the idea of, of kind of reforming planning and and um, I think the, the kind of phrasing that he used was bulldozing planning, which was uh, very evocative. But I think um, the idea of reforming the planning system is one that's it, it comes up regularly. Proposals are made. Um, what tends to happen is that yeah, many have tried reform, but most of them end up tinkering in the end. And I think that's 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 always the risk. The problem is that because this is such um, a, a kind of hot topic and it's and it's the sort of thing where um, people can see houses they know what they look like they know what a park looked like they know what that open field looked like Pe- people grab onto these issues um, and they have a lot of resonance particularly at a local level you could spend an awful lot of political capital attempting to, to break this down and rebuild it and so from the perspective of an incoming government they've got to make that decision is this where we want to be spending all of our political capital because you could end up doing planning and doing nothing else. Um, if that was the thing that you wanted to unpick. And so it is a huge issue. And it's one that, um, as the the kind of Centre for Cities data suggests, is, is generational in terms of fixing the problems. So if it's your big mission, and it's the one you're going for, and I know the, the Labour Party is all about kind of mission led government, I think, if that's something that you're focusing on, um, then you've got to commit to it, and you've got to do it. And I think it will take A fundamental rethink so zoning is definitely an option there um some something has to change that's substantial in the way in which we we do planning in this country in order to do it but that is something that will take years and will take an awful lot of effort to deliver um but it is something that will resonate with voters and it's and it's it's then how um how kind of uh how brave do you feel when it comes down to it when people start pushing back um how many councillors are you willing to lose if it becomes a difficult issue locally all of this is a is a, a questions for um for the leadership uh of the labor party to, to sort of make they've got to make that decision um and whoever's the next government has got to face up to housing and they've got to address some of these issues but um but yeah it's it's one of those that it all comes down to yeah how brave are you and how much how much effort you're going to put into trying and do this because it's it's a big old issue if it was easy to fix it would have been fixed already
0: how brave is Keir Starmer I guess that's the question we will be uh, finding out in the next 12 months um well it's great to speak to you both uh, for regional insight on the housing crisis uh, Arlen Pettit and Tom Jones thank you so much here's a figure I heard today which impressed me, there are now more than 10,000 digital and tech businesses in and around Manchester representing a digital ecosystem worth some £5 billion. With innovative tech playing an ever greater role in all our lives, Manchester is right at the heart of what's happening and can justifiably claim to be one of the UK's if not Europe's biggest tech cities. Last year was the first Manchester Tech Festival designed to highlight Manchester's broad spectrum of diverse talent and from humble beginnings in a basement in the city's northern quarter, the event is now going from strength to strength in its second year with big sponsors like the BBC and Booking.com for this year's gathering at Victoria Baths on November 1st and 2nd amy newton is the founder of the manchester tech festival she grew up on a manchester council estate i gather and is now using her platform to ensure that everyone in the region has fair access to a career in technology so let's speak to amy to find out what all the buzz is about with this year's festival amy it's great to have you on how are things
3: good afternoon to you yeah things are really well thank you we are Two weeks away from the festival, and I am terrifyingly relaxed compared to this time last year.
0: So it's all going, all going well then. All the prep's going well.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. This was our first full year. So um, last year I was doing it predominantly on my own with a handful of freelancers. And I was still contracting for a lot of a lot of the time last year. So I was um a little bit of a zombie and a little bit exhausted. Um, yeah. but this year I've been really lucky to have an amazing organizing board around me and I've got two full-time perm staff this year. We've just taken on a third, we're taking on a fourth in January so yeah it's um yeah it's it's been it's been a lot easier this year
0: (laughs) yeah I can imagine it's all all systems go so um we're not in an elevator at the moment Amy but can you give me your elevator pitch for if people because there's a lot of tech festivals I think around the world how is Manchester Tech Festival different uh you know for people who might be considering coming along what's the what's the sort of appeal of it
3: so I suppose a couple of the core differences is that we aren't an events company. So we my background is in diversity and inclusion within the tech sector. It's within um sort of talent and recruitment and, and those things. I've worked in the tech sector ever since I was 20. Um so sort of my entire working career. I did I worked in bars before that, but possibly not as applicable to what I'm doing today. Um, but my my background is in that space and I've always organised and ran sort of grassroots community events for the past decade, for the past 12 years. Um, I've always kind of organised evening events, afternoon events that have always been not for profit and just sort of genuinely designed to connect and bring people together. And I think I've kind of used that experience. It's, it's, it's the reason that we were able to launch Manchester Tech Festival from a standing start last year was because I had that 12 years behind me of those networks and those sort of um, grassroots groups, I suppose. So I guess one of the ways that Manchester Tech Festival is different is that um, it's a not-for-profit project. So similarly to Ministry of Testing, who are absolutely awesome, and I encourage everyone to check Ministry of Testing out, um, the business is ran very much with principles before profit in mind. So all of our lead up events are free to come to, um, but we ask for a donation of tampons, sanitary pads, nappies and Amy, who is our digital and social inclusion lead, Amy Naylor, another Amy N, just to make things confusing. Amy's job is to work on that digital and social inclusion piece. To the best of my knowledge, I'm not keen to engage in a lawsuit, but to the best of my knowledge, we are the only tech festival, tech week in the UK that employs a digital and social inclusion person full time. So that's a little bit of a difference. And yeah, I guess one of the other things that's different is the lead up events. So all year this year, we've had games nights, which we have on every other Friday night at Dish. Um, So the games nights are what what it says on the tin. It's board games, it's Jenga, it's cat bingo. Although I have to bully people into playing cat bingo with me because not everyone is as nerdy as I am.
0: What is cat bingo? You'll have to explain that one to me. That's a new new one on me.
3: Definitely one of the best games in the world, Rob. So cat bingo (laughs) is like bingo, but you have a board and it has different types of cats on it. And the pieces that you get Del, are like different cats, and then the caller reads out the cats from a card, and you put your marker when you have those cats.
0: That sounds amazing.
3: There's also sea bingo. There's also poop bingo, which is types of animal poop, and there's dog bingo.
0: Do you still call out house when you when when you when you have a full a full house, as it were, in cat bingo, or do you call out something different?
3: If you're playing cat bingo, Rob, the sensible thing would be to meow.
0: Meow. Of course, of course. I should have known that.
3: Don't want to make you feel stupid, Rob. but uh, <laughs> I guess.
0: I don't want to embarrass myself if I could, would have come down and played. So it's good that you explained that to me.
3: Well, it's it's probably only the cool kids that know that you that you have to meow. So you know, look, if you want to be in the cool club, then I guess you have got to learn that.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So 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 there's a lot of events in the run up to sort of yes. promote inclusion. I guess. I mean, tell me some in terms of the festival itself. Just give us give me a sense of how it's going to be different. In the sort of bigger second year to the to the to the first year, are there any any events uh, that you're particularly excited about uh, for the, for this year's festival?
3: I think the main thing this year is that we've just had a much clearer idea of what the community want. So um last year we had sort of lots we really focused a lot on the evening events and on we and we still have evening events this year but I think last year the focus was quite heavy on alcohol and it was quite heavy on being in those venues in the evening where the only entertainment really is sort of the drinking um which which is we we've so this year there is still an after party after every conference there's a drinks reception but we've got some sort of um there's a different vibe and a different feel to it and i think that's really sort of representative of us listening to the community this year because what we've done differently this year as well is we've had the networking so um, instead of always having sort of boozy evening events, the people that have kind of, you know, on the organising board this year have, you know, kind of really backed me on having more events like Games Night or networking or events that are quite wholesome and that are quite focused on bringing connections together. So um, the difference this year that I'm really looking forward to is the fact that we've really kind of got a much um, a much wider crowd attracted because we want to be as inclusive as possible and not everybody enjoys being in an alcohol-based environment. And I think, um, you know, I think people possibly want to see the money spent more on, you know, the quality of the conference during the day and on making sure that we've got those spaces to get the donations that we need. Um, I guess the difference I would say is, I think this year there's, there's just less of an emphasis on um, can I say piss up on a podcast or are you gonna to have to it? Yeah,
0: why not? Yeah. All right,
3: yeah. I think this year we just wanted a bit of it, it we want, you know, by by all means, you know, we've we've got after parties this year. We're at Banyan in Spinning Fields, we're at Hotel Brooklyn, we're at Footage, we're at Abel Haywood, which is one of our favourites. You know, we've we've got after things this year, but it's less of a you know, I think some of the numbers last year possibly came from, you know, just having a a free bar all night and it's not necessarily representative of everybody in the community. So this year I was really pleased to be able to kind of steady the ship um, and really focus on, you know, those connections really.
0: Yeah. Now, this all sounds quite different to uh, what I know of sort of other other tech festivals like the London, the the London equivalent um, in in, in the capital. I gather that Vishy Sinak was one of the speakers at london's tech festival this year i'm guessing was he on your on your guest list of, of people you wanted to invite or do you think manchester's maybe seen seen enough of rishi sinak in a, in the last in the last few days
3: no he wasn't on my list of people to be blind.
0: <laughs> fair enough <laughs> well, we'll, well we'll leave it at that i think um well i'd love to hear a bit more about your backstory as well amy can you just you mentioned a bit about how you used to work in bars and things before you got into the tech sector sort of full time. Can you just tell me a bit about you know, your background, how you how you got into this this area of interest?
3: I won't bore you with all of it, but my first job that you could perceive to be a paid job was um, one of my best mates. who's still my best friend to this day. Uh, God, for about 20 years now, um, her parents owned a pub and when we were 11, um for a quid we would collect glasses when we came in in the evenings after we'd been at school um and that was really really good and then yeah I did everything in my teens you do everything when you're a kid from a council estate you work wherever you can work so I worked in a pork scratchings factory from 6am till 2pm I did that for a while
0: where where in Manchester did you uh did you grow up Amy
3: all over so originally Stratford um, originally Stratford, and then I was, uh, yeah. I think uh, the last time that I counted, I think there was like twelve different locations in the northwest before I was uh, sixteen. So it's hard to pin it down, really. I lived in Bolton, Averton, um, Tilsley, Leigh, yeah, all over really. Edgerton, if that classes as Bolton, Wigan lived in Wigan. So yeah, very, very, very familiar with the northwest. Shall we say?
0: Absolutely. And then so what what was there one particular thing that sort of got you excited about the potential of, of tech or was it something that sort of crept up on you over the over the years?
3: No, absolutely not. I blagged my way into my first um tech recruitment job absolutely shamelessly because I needed the money. Um I was twenty years old and I was working at the time in telemarketing and it was before Ancoats had seen the beautiful gentrification that has happened in Ankos. Um, But I was working for a company um, doing telemarketing and you got paid a base salary and then you got paid 50 quid for every appointment that you made. And I really needed the money. And so I was staying until half six, seven o'clock at night and I went for a pint with someone from work and we got chatting to a lad uh, called Greg Southern, who might still be a rector rec, And I got chatting to him. We were on all bar one on King Street. So someone else must have been buying the pints. But I'll never forget because we were sat outside in the smoking area. And he said, bloody hell, you've been working late. You must be a recruiter. And I said, no, we're working telemarketing. Don't work in recruitment. And he said, well, if you're prepared to work these hours, then you're wasting your time in telemarketing. Love, you want to get into recruitment. Um, If you're happy to work 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. making sales calls, don't waste your t- don't waste your time earning fifty quid an appointment. Get yourself into IT recruitment. So this would have been two thousand and ten. So I thought I was a woman of action. Uh, so I thought bollocks to it. Why not? So um, yeah. So he helped me. He was a rec to rec. And um, so he got me into my first recruitment company. And yeah, from and they gave. I was working as a resourcer at first. And I remember. Um, she said to me in the interview, we need someone who's comfortable recruiting software testing professionals. Now, you know, what do you know about software testing? And I said, I'm glad you've asked. I've always liked software testing. I wish there was more software testing, frankly. Um, I mean, is there enough software testing? That's what we should be asking ourselves. And she started laughing and she said, yeah, you've not got a clue, have you? And I said, nope, not even nearly. Uh, not even sure I can spell it. And she said, well, look, are you prepared to turn up on time and work hard? And I said, yes, I am. And it kind of went from there. But it was during this time in recruitment that I started seeing things. I learned what a BA was. I learned what a project manager was. I learned what a PMO was. And I was looking at these jobs. And a lot of the time I was dealing with contractors. And I won't tell you the massive client that we had at the time, but we had a massive client that was taking business analysts on for fun. It seemed like in one of the jobs in my twenties, and the day rates were three hundred to three hundred and fifty pounds a day. And I thought they, were, I thought it was a miss. I thought they'd misspelled it. I thought it was thirty two quid a day, but it was three hundred and twenty quid a day. And 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 I was looking at this, and I was reading what a job description of a business analyst was, and I was reading a job description of a project manager, and I thought so. There's a lot of diplomatic stakeholder management. There's a lot of good communication skills that you need to be very organised. Um, you need to be able to liaise with the business and IT. That seemed essential. That's something that we talked about all the time. You have to talk to the business and talk to IT. And I quickly learned that in a lot of big companies, they're seen as two different, two different functions. Um, and I remember thinking, God, there are so many girls I went to high school with who would eat this job alive. But they're still on the estate. And they're still hoping that when he comes home from work on Friday, he gives them enough money for nappies at the weekend. Uh, and I'm not downplaying it. I'm not disvaluing anything. But you know, if you get a, if you get the if you get the child of an alcoholic parent to work for you, what you'll find is that sometimes, again, if you're listening to this and you're desperate to be offended by me, congratulations, you will find yourself offended if you are desperate to be. But I'm speaking from experience. Generally speaking. Children of alcoholics are really good at things like sensing the mood in the room change, reading body language, working out who it is that you need to be diplomatic with and how long for and for what reason. Kids of alcoholic parents tend to be pretty good at budgeting because you get £4.30 at the start of the week and you need to get your school lunch out of that. And you might need to get a snack on the way home from school because guess what? You're 13 years old, so you're hungry. Um, so there's all sorts of skills that the working poor have. There's all sorts of transferable skills that the working poor have. Very often you have to be very resilient because you have trauma and a boatload of shite can go on. So, you know, you have this whole generation of kids that are resilient, that are very, that have got a very good sense of humour because a lot of the time you have to have one. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. are very good at dealing with lots of different types of people and are also very, very good at being a chameleon because they have to be. And what I think is quite interesting about the difference between growing up without money and growing up with money is there's a a certain, and again, this is a generalization, this is a generalization, I can't make that clear enough. But what you sometimes see with people who've grown up without money is a hunger that is difficult to shake. And the reason for that is because they're in survival mode. So what you tend to find is that they will work hard, they will graft, they will try and find a solution, they will try and make something work, and they'll do that a lot early on. It's usually, it's sometimes a skill that professional people develop throughout the career, but the reason that I'm passionate about the working poor getting a career in tech is because I also saw the salaries, and it, it doesn't matter what your politics are, it doesn't matter what your ideals are, it doesn't matter what you go to bed at night believing. The reality is that financial independence is the only way to carve out a life for yourself. If you are a single mum living on an estate with two or three kids and, you know, the career, you know we talk about tech returners, but if the career that you're returning to is 60 grand a year, that might as well be a million quid a year to girls like me. 60 grand a year, you're laughing. The, the thought of owning your own home, oh my God, the thought of owning your own flat, the thought of not being evicted. You know, we're in a housing crisis in the UK at the moment. We are absolutely up shit creek without a paddle. People are getting the calculators out to do an LD shop. I do it myself. And the reason that I'm passionate about about kids like me getting a career in tech is because People in the tech industry will very often get down on themselves. Too male dominated. Not enough diversity. Not enough people here. Not enough people over there. Too male dominated. Oh, we're awful. Oh, we must do better. Hashtag do better. Don't get me wrong. Really, not solved it yet. We are still in that situation. But at the same time, we are we are we are miles ahead of a lot of other industries from from what I've observed. The tech industry is better than academia and construction for salaries. It's better than legal for diversity. It's better than financial services for diversity and inclusion. Again, so see me, this is just, this, this is just my, my sort of observation. But what I've seen in the tech industry over 10 years as working as a recruiter is mental health days, flexible working. A lot of tech companies came out to give more to dads when kids, when they're having kids, more paternity, more benefits for paternity leave than maternity leave. There was a lot of tech companies. I can't remember which which one was it. They had this this woman announced that she was going off on maternity leave. They were paying her a full salary for 12 months. They'd got her a box, which had nappies, had bought her a mama's and papa's pram, she had a big box, which had all sorts of baby stuff in it. She's busy posting on, on LinkedIn saying, oh, you know, really excited. This is this is my box. And then she was posting pictures of her having a coffee or, or a tea. I've not had babies myself. I'm not sure what you can drink in the aftermath. I do know it's not tequila. Um, but ideally, no. You know, if you can try and hold off on the tequila when you're breastfeeding, that'd be ideal. Um, but she was busy posting pictures of herself with her boss at... Um, a really fancy cafe in town. They were just doing that monthly. She was just getting took out and I was thinking, "Oh my god, I can remember being little, and literally the the woman in the house next door to us crying every day because she had to ring a boss. She was on the verge of losing a job. And I just think, again, I'm not trying to build this this utopia. I understand that every industry has its issues, every business has its issues. But and 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 listen, I'm not a politician, right? I've not got a degree. I'm not putting myself forward as, as some sort of deeply educated person, but what I will say is I've grown up in that environment, and then I switched and joined the tech industry in Manchester and thought, oh my god, less than half an hour's bus ride away from these offices, these offices with free cans of diet coke. You know, when we were kids, like Peter Kay says, it was roller cola. You, didn't, you know, you didn't, you, you you know, you didn't have Coca Cola when you were little. You had pop. You had council pop, which was water from the tap. And less than half an hour away, you've got these offices in Manchester that have got um you know ping pong tables, beer fridges, Grub club, you know Franco manca pizza, you know food drinks, the some of the offices are absolutely beautiful and if you if you ever get the chance to go to booking.com's offices, bite the hand off because it's like another world and it's right here in Manchester and less than half an hour away. You have got kids counting coppers to get a chippy tea on a Wednesday night because no one else is going to make the tea for them. So from where I'm coming from, the Dickensian gap between the haves and the have-nots in Greater Manchester is only getting worse because of various political things that have happened. And I think that the reason I'm passionate about kids having fair access to careers in technology isn't... Because I've seen somebody hashtag the digital divide, and I thought, oh, that might be a decent way to earn a living. It's because I'm I'm that kid. I grew up on that estate in Manchester. I come from that council estate background. I come from that difficult background, and I've been given an opportunity because of this industry. My story is real, and that's why I'm doing Manchester Tech Festival. That's why it matters to me. That's why it's important to me, and that's why I live and breathe it.
0: Yeah, that's a uh, well, wow, that's an amazing, uh, powerful story that. You know, your your example of getting into tech and, and you know what you've been trying to do since then is uh, amazing and I know really got only got a couple a couple more minutes ain't you, before you need to go but it just strikes me that I, I've heard Andy Burnham the mayor of Greater Manchester talk about the what you've been talking about really the disparity between you know the booming centre of Manchester with the skyscrapers and the amazing offices and so forth and then a few miles out on the estates of of Bolton or Wigan or, or Stockport or wherever, people, uh, kids who are growing up there, for whom Manchester might as well be another world because they would never be able to get there or don't think they can get there. It, how easy is it going to be to bridge bridge that gap? Is is enough happening at the moment? Do you think to 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 bridge that gap?
3: Um, what I would say is that Andy Burnham was absolutely fantastic. Big fan, um, and I'm really, really the people that we've got in place in local government. We've got people like Sherelle Fairweather at Manchester City Council. We've got people like Beena Puri at GMCA. We've got people like Darren O'Brien, who was looking after the ecosystem at the Digital Security Hub. Um, we've got—I think—we've got the right people in the right places. Um, it's chipping away at it. It's—it's it's not going to be something that's overnight. It's—it's it's chipping away. At, it's chipping away at it. But I think we've got a really, really good chance of it. I mean, I'm—I'm I'm talking to you now from Ditch. Um, which is the Digital Security Hub, which is looked after by um, Darren O'Brien from um, Barclays. And it's a collaboration between the University of Lancaster, who are the lead academic partner, University of Manchester, who are the academic partner, Plexel, who are the innovation partner, and Barclays Eagle Labs and Manchester City Council. And as we're having this conversation, I'm in one of the booths, um, there are are kiddies in the event space doing some sort of cyber training situation. Uh, they've got notepads out they're in round tables they're learning about stuff Um, not 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 more than I think six weeks ago um Sage were in here um a guy uh, a guy called uh, Lee Jeffrey who's a UX lead at Sage he was in Dish they were busy teaching kids how to do UX stuff so I think Dish Dish is a very very big part of it um but you need doers and I think we've got a good chance. I think Manchester is split between talkers and doers. And I think if you've got people that spend more time posting hashtags about digital skills, I mean, what digital skills are? I'd love to know. Is it turning your laptop on? Is it understanding how your smart TV works? Is it charging your iPhone? I I don't know. It's very vague. Um, And that's why I tend to stay away from anything to do with you know digital because it's it's how do you quantify that how do you measure it but i think whereas when you've got very very specific things you know when you've got people like darren and shirel and beena and loads of other amazing people john lomas from lancaster Uni- university um he's got the right spirit i think when you've got i think you've got we've got a lot of really really good people who really really care um and I'll be honest, I met our Lord Mayor, um, Yasmin Dar recently at a, um, a breakfast thing. And she's absolutely fantastic. Um, Mank through and through, really down-to-earth background. I'm proud of the people that we've got in Manchester. I think it's very easy for people to rally against the unfairness of the world. And it's very easy to complain and gripe and, you know, the city isn't what it should be. And, oh, you know, we should have this and we should have that. So you can either complain about it and you can be grumpy and you can kick off or you can roll your sleeves up, get into the office an hour earlier, pick the phone up and make something
0: happen. Well, it sounds like you are certainly one of the doers, uh, Amy. Uh, Amy Newton, founder of the Manchester Tech Festival. Thanks so much for your time.
3: Thanks for having me on, Rob. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.